HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Allie Lariah. She grew up in New Jersey around restaurants, and she got into the food business at a very young age. In 2011, she started Marion Berry Cookies with inspiration from her mother and grandmother and began selling a full line of all-natural cookies that ended up getting natural national distribution and ended up getting picked up by Bloomingdale's. She went to school in San Francisco where she was studying journalism to be a food writer while working at the chow.com test kitchen, and now she's back on the east coast she's uh in manhattan and she's partnered up with samantha wasser and e-squared hospitality to open up the sosta which is a fast casual italian restaurant in manhattan that serves pasta salads and focaccia sandwiches there's some branding and visual similarities that may remind some diners somewhat of by chloe the massively successful vegan restaurant that is also owned and operated by e-squared Today we're going to be talking about the fast casual space of the restaurant industry, what it's like to work with a big hospitality group uh, developing a new concept, what impact Instagram has on diners and on the Manhattan dining world, and also how Allie got involved in the food world in the first place. Allie, welcome to the program. Hi. So I want to begin talking about San Francisco first off. Mm -hmm. So you're from New Jersey, and then you moved to San Francisco to enroll in school to study journalism. Uh, Why the jump to the West Coast, and uh, what type of uh, journalism did you want to study? The reason for going to the West Coast was I just wanted a change of scenery. I grew up right outside of Manhattan, and... Although, in hindsight, I didn't really know the food world of Manhattan. I felt like I did at that age. And I wanted something new and different. And San Francisco just, I mean, 
the food there is incredible. And also the, the wine scene I really wanted to explore. And so when you're in New Jersey, you're growing up, were you involved in any way with restaurants or the food business at all? I've been working in restaurants since I was 15, like off the books, running food until I could start working on the books, on the weekends, and being a server, bartender, anything I could do. So where did you work? Mostly in New Jersey, or did you ever work in Manhattan? I worked in New Jersey because I was still in high school. Uh And so what type of places, places did you work at? I started off in Italian restaurants. Um, I'm so comfortable there and familiar. And my mom had been working in a few of them. And then I moved over to some different Asian cuisines and basically anyone who would hire me at that age. Were these like, I need some money and a job is a job type of scenarios? Or were you actually even at that point trying to learn and pay attention to what was going on in the restaurants? I think a combination. I mean, some extra spending money didn't hurt. And so were there any takeaways when you were working in these restaurants? Did you say to yourself like, uh, oh, I'm paying attention to what's going on in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. maybe one day I'll end up running a restaurant in Manhattan or was that, was there like a disconnect at that point? Um, I don't think there was a disconnect. I'm not sure if I was paying as close attention as I should have been, but I always knew I wanted to be in the hospitality industry. I wasn't sure if it was in hotels or restaurants, but I did know I wanted to do something on a grand scale. And so now take us to San Francisco. So you end up in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You're studying. You're doing some writing. What's your life like at that point? My life was surrounded by startups, and all of my friends were doing such cool stuff. And I felt like I needed to get on the internet and start a website just like everyone else. And I refused to call it a food blog back then, but that's definitely what it was. And I was trying to create this database of all the craft beers in San Francisco and the Bay Area and all different ingredients I would find at the farmer's markets around the city. And I happened to be living with my friend one summer and he was living with these guys, Joe and Brian, And it was actually, they're the guys that started Airbed and Breakfast, which then became Airbnb. So I was living in their apartment at the time. So you lived in the original Airbnb? I did. There was one futon in the living room and a bunch of different desks. So it was a work live. Um, The kitchen was stocked with Obama O's, which was their cereal that they created for the breakfast portion of the website. And I would just, I would sit on the roof of the apartment and like research and taste beers and taste different ingredients and try and create recipes for my followers. Probably a a great vibe to be inspired and and being in that environment. So since you're sort of surrounded by all these startups that are happening, Mm -hmm. what what did you end up doing with your blog, your, your website? Did you end up developing it? Did it go live or? Yeah, it did for a couple of years. And like most things, when you're younger, you just like outgrow them or you realize there needs to be something more than this. And I had been, I mean, the website really got me traveling and taking road trips and the Bay area is perfect for road trips. And I found myself in Oregon Um, at this little bakery in Portland where everything was pink and purple and it was all flavored with Marionberry jam. And I was like, oh my God, Marionberry. That is A, the perfect name for a business. It is my mom's name, my great grandma's name. So it's super meaningful. And 
I kind of like I had an aha moment of I need to start something. I need to I need to get something going and So how old were you when you started this cookie company? 22. Okay. And what are the steps that you take in order to start this company? I mean, obviously tons of people in their lives have said, yeah. I should start a X company, mm-hmm. right? You can, the, well, Air, the Airbnb guys would probably tell you that they've run into thousands of people in San Francisco that have said that they've got an idea. How do you take the idea of a, a very meaningful, mm-hmm. cute, well-branded name and an excellent food product that you think is delicious? How do you take that to the next step? What, what did you start off by doing? I started off by researching what existed in the space in New Jersey, knowing that the only way that this could work at this point would be to partner with my mom to execute and started doing some research. And then I gave her a call and was like, Hey, you're not so happy with your job right now. Uh, would you be interested in taking this new journey with me and I decided to move back home to New Jersey. So did your mom basically become sort of like your investor partner? Is that how it happened or? Um, yeah, I mean, really the dessert space at the time was very limited, um, barrier to entry. It was not expensive. We had a few thousand dollars. We were able to rent a kitchen and buy some opening inventory and start rolling things out. And so Locally. who did the packaging? Like, how did you get a brand I called together? in a lot of favors from my West Coast friends to uh-huh. get a website going, to get a logo designed. And my dad's in the printing industry. So I had some packaging contacts and I just called in a lot of favors. And so you launch, you've mm-hmm. got a cookie. Yeah. It tastes good. You've got a, a, you've got a logo. We had a lot of products and we narrowed it down. We were selling locally. Okay. And where How? we were making money. Hand selling at, to hand stores? Hand selling to restaurants and stores. And I grew up there, so we had a... So who friends. was your first customer? Who picked it up? A bunch of local restaurants. That's great. So yeah. they were selling them it, on their dessert menu? Mm-hmm. or Okay. Yeah, we took over their dessert menus and we realized that cookies were really what we're selling the best. And I started, I started an e-commerce section on our website. And then I started a little bit of guerrilla marketing. I would take my cookies everywhere. Uh, one of the first things I did was I went to a Sarah Bareilles concert and brought a ton of cookies and started passing them up to the stage. Before I knew it, Sarah Bareilles basically introduced my brand to a huge audience, then tweeted about it. And we got a huge influx of orders. I realized, that's pretty cool. I'm going to keep doing this. That's amazing. So you have all these orders coming in. Did you end up having to hire people to help out with the production? Like how, (laughs) how small... How small was it at the beginning, and did you grow at all, or were you were you able to manage it between the fam between your family? Um, we managed it pretty well. We would hire hourly staff whenever, we, like during the holidays, or if we needed some extra hands. But I was working like eighteen hour days to get it done. And so, what does it feel like when you? There's sort of this feeling about coming home that it's mm-hmm. almost like. You didn't make it, you know? It's like you went all the way to the West Coast and then you came home, but you came home to make it, right? I mean, I definitely swallowed my pride a little bit to come back here. (laughs) Did (laughs) you move back in to your childhood home? I did, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so like you took some sacrifice in order to start this company. Uh, What did it feel like when the 
when the orders started coming in? It, it felt amazing. Um, there wasn't so much time to be super excited about it because I just needed to get stuff out the door. But really, when I got the attention of one of the buyers at Bloomingdale's corporate, and he offered to set us up with a trial in Bloomingdale Soho, the trial went great, sold out, and then we got three stores, and then four stores, and then the East Coast, and then we went nationally within six months. So that's when it felt real. Were you able to sustain that growth, or was there a point at which, you know, did it drop off? Does does the company still exist? Are you still making the cookies? I'm not, no. Okay. Um, We were able to keep going, and then... It was, I mean, it was a crazy point in my life to being so young and having a business that was like growing and growing and growing. Um, Coincidentally, it was also like the craziest time in my personal life. So the combination of stresses, I was like, ah, something's got to give. All right. So let's not gloss over this too much. What was happening that in your personal life, if you would be willing to share a little bit, I'm curious, like if there's all these changes happening and you're so young, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you deal with all these things that are going on? Like, how did you deal with the actual stress of, you know, you're not just a person in a new job, Mm -hmm. you're running your own company. There was a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Um, My family was just like, it fell apart during that time. And it was really, it was difficult to be a hundred percent for the company that I needed to be. And I realized something needs to change and I need to move on. There's, you can't really fix something that's so broken. So when you moved on, what was the next step in your journey? Traveling to Italy. Okay. And so why Italy and how long did you spend in Italy? Italy, I had never been in my life, and it kind of just made sense, and I had someone I was traveling with who was like, this, you need to go. This is what you need for inspiration, for a clear head. Uh, do you have family there? Are you, is I your family based there, from a certain part of Italy? North and south. Okay. And so did you meet up with any of your cousins? Like, where did you travel around? I didn't. It was really, like, it was soul-searching for me, Mm -hmm. that trip specifically. Um, The first trip was Bologna, Milan, and I'm actually doing the same trip tomorrow. Cool. Yeah. But that, I mean, Bologna is food-focused, and then Milan, and then going over to Piedmont, I absolutely fell in love with Piedmont wines. And so were you doing... You were doing a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. A lot. Are you <laughs> casually paying attention to what's going on? Are you taking diligent notes? Like how much of this is about your potentially your next step and how much of it is mm-hmm. about sort of getting away from what's going on in the United States? It was definitely the latter. I It was a personal awakening trip for me. And when I came home, that's when I was really able to go through. So... Tell me some specifics. Was there a, a restaurant or a moment or a wine that you drank that you that you remember to this day that sticks out in your mind as sort of a pivotal moment for you? Is there yeah. a plate of food that changed things for you? There are a couple. There's this one restaurant um, in Piedmont in Diano d'Alba, and it's up on a vineyard, and every single thing in there is grown in the farms right outside the door, and... There is this 2006 Canubi Barolo that is 
life-changing, that wine. It's ridiculously good. Um, and also the, the food there, there's a hazelnut puree over anchovies and beef tartare with pickled mushrooms. Those dishes to date are the best things I've ever had. So you're spending this time in Italy mm-hmm. and you're kind of finding yourself and reassessing what, uh, what you're going to be doing with, with your life. How long did you stay in Italy um, during this trip? Was it just like a, a couple weeks? Yeah, it was weeks a couple or? weeks, yeah. Okay. And, and where did you return to? Did you return to New Jersey? I did. I returned to New Jersey. And then what? Um, then I had to face reality that <laughs> I still had a company that I needed to <laughs> take care of. Um, but I really, I had a new state of mind and it was a healthier state of mind and I was able to make the decision to dissolve the company and have a clean break and move forward with something I was more passionate about. What does it feel like when uh, the day that you wake up after you dissolve the company and mm-hmm. you kind of think, okay, I, ha- the, I you, you were maybe defined by that company, right? Yeah. For a period of your life, mm-hmm. it was what you were about. Yep. How does it feel to wake up the next day and not have that, concept to that brand, that company, uh, either, you know, defining you, but also it's not, maybe not weighing you down anymore. How does that feel? Um, it was defeating, but also there was such a huge sense of relief. And then I was scared because then I needed to find something new. And I knew that I wasn't going to just apply for a new job and work for somebody else. It's just, and I was getting pushed in that direction from everyone in my life. And I just knew that I would never be happy doing that. What so that was? What direction were they pushing you in? Were they pushing you in a direction uh, related to food? Get, get a salary. Yeah. Get some health care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That'd be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but you were obviously you were considering the food industry at that point. I imagine hundred percent. Uh huh. And were there any specific offers that you like almost entertained? I did. Yeah. I I thought okay, fine. If I need a paycheck and I need some sort of security, then maybe I go back into the, like go into the tech space, but with food and found this company that had a really, really cool platform for hotels. And I was really interested in it. Then there was another, a coffee company that I think started in Brooklyn and it was like more of a membership platform. But for some reason, I just, I, I couldn't do it. So, when you're you're in Italy, you're mm-hmm. going all around, and I know that the Sosta is well. I've read that it's influenced by these gas station auto grills that yeah. are found on the highways mm-hmm. in Italy. Uh, so while you're there, you're gaining inspiration from the for this potential project that maybe you didn't even know about. But mm-hmm. I, I want to know what is an auto grill for those listening that have never been to Italy or have only you know gone to Florence and haven't driven the highways. Yeah. What is an auto grill? What sort of defines the the cuisine that is served there and why do you like them auto grills are gas stations in italy they're all all through the country along the highways and a lot of the auto grills some are bigger and some are smaller so some have more offerings than others but they're all regionally inspired so an auto grill outside of bologna could have a fresh pasta station which was a huge aha moment for me. Um, outside of Campania, you're getting fresh buffalo mozzarella or burrata and it's 
two euros. Like it's it's insane the quality of of food there. They really just know how to do everything better in Italy, don't they? They're so, like, so much. oh, you have beef jerky at your gas stations. <laughs> we have a fresh pasta station. You know, mm-hmm. what do you guys think of that? Um, so you so you go and you stop on the side of the road, and then you have the opportunity to eat these wonderful foods. Yeah. Is it sort of like a is it a nice setting to consume the food? Like, or is it some, really like being in a quickie mart gas station? <laughs> some, some are, but even those will still have a great espresso, mm-hmm. but some of the bigger ones, yeah, they're, they're clean. They're nice. They're modern. They're like, would it's a you, cool experience. Would you equate it more to a restaurant inside of a gas station or is it really like fast food? Because what I'm picturing is, you mm-hmm. know, you stop on the side of the road and there's a combination Taco Bell, Taco Bell Pizza Hut or like, yeah. a, you know, a subway, right? And everyone's been in one of those on a road trip. Sure, they're clean, they're fine, but they're also like really boring. They're totally mm-hmm. stripped down. Is it like a fast food where you like order at the counter or is it like a restaurant that just happens to be connected to a gas station? I really think that the closest comparison would be fast casual because it's not fast food. It's not lower quality. It's, it's good quality food. It's affordable. It's served to go and it's in a space or setting that matches the food or the, the setting of the location. We're going to take a quick break here on Heritage Radio and we come back more with Allie and we're going to talk about her new restaurant that just opened up in Manhattan, the Sosta. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Welcome back to The Line. I'm joined today by Chef Ali Laraya. She is the chef in charge of the Sosta, which just recently opened in Manhattan. We are talking about sort of her earlier life and her earlier career as a cookie entrepreneur. She started Marionberry Cookies uh, along with her mother in New Jersey, and it ended up getting national distribution. After some hardship, she decided to dissolve the company and went on a sort of uh, self-finding mission <laughs> to Italy where she was inspired by the auto grills that you can find on the side of the highway there. And now we are in sort of present day, Ali, uh, you are now one of the, uh, founders of the Sosta. 
It is part of the E Squared Hospitality Group, uh, which is relevant because the Sosta is a fast casual concept. And uh, by Chloe, the vegan fast casual concept that E Squared operates has been very, very successful and has multiple locations already open after a very, after a very short time. Um, and so I want to know. How did you become involved with this project, the SOSTA? Did you know um, Sam Wasserman from E Squared? Were you recommended? Did they find you somehow? How, how did it come to be? I had been working on this concept of a fast, casual, fresh, fresh pasta place for a few years. And I had done a lot of return trips to Italy in, in doing some research. And then I went to Japan to see the noodle shops and how efficient ramen shops are. And through all of the research and realizing that there was a huge void in the market, I was like, all right, this really needs to happen. Then I started pitching investors. And through that process, I met with Laureen, who's the founder of Paper White Studios. And she did all of the branding for By Chloe. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you should meet my friend Sam Wasser. She started By Chloe and she's the creative partner in that concept. And I think you guys would really hit it off. And long story short, I met Sam, we hit it off and we started developing the Sosta. So what exactly is that like to really develop a concept from the ground up? You say that you had been, you know, studying and you had mm -hmm. been thinking about it and you had been developing, but how cohesive of a, of a pitch did you have? Did you have a deck ready with, yeah, with numbers and I with did. recipes and everything like that? Mm -hmm. You did. Okay. Um, how did you, how did you develop that deck? You know, did you have a mentor or someone that was working with you to, to develop that, that deck and take it out to market for, mm -hmm. to find investors? Yeah. I had a lot of friends that had a lot of startup experience with decks and pitching help out with, with that. It's, it's a scary and a confusing process. Very. I mean, just from what I went through along with my brother, we have a fast casual restaurant. So I, I'm very interested in, in what you do, uh, because it's sort of, uh, it's a similar path, like to have this idea that's brewing in your mind and then to try to convince people to give you hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of dollars to execute that idea is very challenging. Uh, were there any, meetings or any moments where you wanted to quit where it seemed yes <laughs> <laughs> it's a very defeating process trying to raise money and I think I initially went about it the wrong way I was I was really just looking through my network and a lot of young finance guys that could give $50,000 and not really think anything of it then before I knew it I had this list of 30 people that I was like they don't really get it and they don't really believe in the concept. They kind of just want to throw money at something that sounds cool. And I took a little bit of a break, like a month to just regroup. And I realized that I needed a hospitality partner. I needed somebody who understood the industry and I could, it was more of a strategic partnership. Obviously you come with the idea, you come with the passion, you have the recipes, but you don't have any operational experience. You've worked in restaurants, but mm -hmm. you've never led a kitchen, right? Yeah. And you had never, um, worked the line at a restaurant in New York, right? Mm -hmm. So was that a leap for E squared to partner with you from a, not from a creative standpoint or even a flavor execution standpoint, yeah. but from like a logistics standpoint, because they are a fairly 
large entity, did mm-hmm. they did that make them feel more comfortable or did you really have to convince them that you were the right person for that job? I think I had to convince them, but they also believed in me and what I'm capable of from the beginning. And and why do you think that that is? Because it really is, and I'm sure you know, you're know three months in, you're finding that the day-to-day of a restaurant <laughs> is really chaotic, yes, right? And right. Uh, the things that you see that happen, the only way that really you know how to deal with them is from seeing someone else having dealt with them prior. Mm-hmm. You say, the drain's clogged. Okay, well, three years ago, I saw my chef mm-hmm. unclog the drain, right? And so uh, how do you... How do you lead um, the Sosta, which is a, a restaurant that has 40 seats and cranks out a lot of food, uh, from while well, you're actually really like learning on the job, yes. right? So how does that work out for you? I'm, I'm a quick learner, so <laughs> it's been going well. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. Every day is something new, and you just have to be able to be creative and think on your toes and be confident in whatever you're trying to execute. So what's that day to day like? Are you, um, are you going there in the morning and like supervising production and, uh, do you expo? Like what exactly is your kind of role at the restaurant? I do anything that is needed in the back of house. Um, but I also like to be part of front of house so that there were like one giant team and there's never a division between the two. And so how does pasta production work at the Sosta? Pasta production works. Um, we have a full-time pasta guy downstairs mm-hmm. who pumps out pasta every single day. And then we also, we just hired a new pasta guy to keep up with production. And so what type of machine do you use? Are you making everything fresh every day? Yes, so everything's you're, fresh You're not day. buying any dry pastas? No. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the machine. What shapes are you currently making? Mm-hmm. And what's the process for making the pasta? Like what goes into the actual mix? Uh, our pasta is just semolina and water. It's very traditional. Uh, our machine is from Emilio Midi from San Francisco, but all the machines are from Italy. And... Our pasta shapes, I wanted to do something that was a little bit different and also paired perfectly with our sauces. So one of our most populars is the Zucca vodka. And it's, vodka sauce is obviously not Italian, but it's very nostalgic for me from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zucca is the shape of a pumpkin. So it actually holds the sauce. So that is the perfect combination um, of sauce to shape. And we also just rolled out a new shape for our pesto called Gemelli. It's like a little twist, kind of like fazili. Uh, we have a bucatini, a rabiata, and a pocari bolognese. Most people use uh, tagliatelle or pappardelle for bolognese, but this one is like a wide, flat take on a rigatoni. I'm curious about quality control because... Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're extremely passionate about the product. It's your face on the product, but uh, you 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 pick up so many portions of pasta per day, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm curious, pasta can be like kind of finicky. There's different cook times and everything like that. How do you manage um, the pickups? And also, how have you been training people to do the pickups? Like, um, do you use do you have a singular water bath that all the pasta is getting cooked with? Do you have multiple ones? Uh, 
do you use timers or do people just like learn how to do it and then do it by eye and by taste? How mm-hmm. does how does that exactly how does that work? It's definitely an imperfect system. It definitely takes a little bit of skill and you really need to pay attention for whoever is dropping the pastas. We have mental times and we also have clocks on our screens that we go by, but I make everyone taste the pasta every time. So every order that's coming up gets tasted by, mm-hmm. by that person. And then are you using, because it's fast casual, I'm wondering like, um, use a mixing bowl. And then is there a specific ladle size that each sauce gets in everything order? Is everything's measured out, measured out and mm-hmm. weighed. So I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, um, so E squared, I imagine that their goal for the Sosta along with you is that this is a clonable concept and mm-hmm. that there can be a second one, right? And so uh, does E squared employ someone that does sort of like vertical integration system chain analysis so that besides you, the person in charge who's mm-hmm. trying to manage all these balls that are bouncing in the air, do they have someone else that comes in and helps standardize processes so that when you go from one to two to three to 10, mm-hmm. that things are consistent or is that is that your job? It is a collaboration, but we have a staff of corporate chefs at E-Squared mm-hmm. who come in and out and make sure that everything is running properly and implements new systems if something's not working and and early on in the process have you found that you're running into consistency issues are you feeling good about the way things are going because you're really early on like yeah you're in the i've just you're in the tweaking phase uh (laughs) uh-huh lots of tweaking going on um certain roles are meant for certain people and that's really what we're focusing on just making sure the right person is dropping the pasta, making sure the right person is doing the salad and sandwich station and the right person is executing. And so are you baking breads there as well? We are. And what are you, what kind of breads are you baking? We're, we do fresh focaccia throughout the day. So you're making pasta by hand. Mm-hmm. You're making bread from scratch in-house. And mozzarella. And mozzarella. Mm-hmm. And you're picking up everything to order and you're trying what what's the ticket time that you're shooting for to get food out the door to the customer? Four minutes. Okay. That's extremely fast. <laughs> I thought you were going to say 10 or 12. But okay. So f- fresh pasta in four minutes. You're baking all these things. Mm-hmm. Um from a labor and from a, just a business standpoint, making a lot of things on site involving a lot of labor mm-hmm. is bad for business, right? Yeah. Like uh, at my spot, we make all our pita from scratch multiple times a day. We roll balls. There's a certain um, comparison that can be made to like making uh, pitas and making pasta because mm-hmm. someone has to manage the baking process. Someone has to manage the cooking process. So I can speak to labor numbers and how much of a bummer they can be. <laughs> so is there, is there a, um, a danger to launching a fast casual concept that relies so heavily on, uh, perfection Mm -hmm. (laughs) on making things in house that are not, you know, it would be easier, right? If you just got a focaccia delivery every single day, definitely, right? So why do a fast casual concept where you're making so much stuff there? Why make that decision? Um, it's just true to 
the concept. We want to be fresh and we want to be as local as possible. And it's inspired by Italy and the access to fresh food at an affordable price. And you, I imagine you all feel that that's sustainable, which is why you launched mm-hmm. the concept. But are you running into any pushback based on portion size to price? Like, are people surprised at all? Like, I actually don't know what the prices are mm-hmm. off the top of my head, but I imagine that your chart, what's a, what's a uh, bowl of pasta cost, a lunch size portion? 10, $11. Are, are people finding that for the amount of pasta that they're getting for $11, mm-hmm. are they content? Are they surprised? Are you finding any like customer pushback at all based on, based on those factors? We had some pushback in the beginning with um, having portion sizes being too small for the value. And I don't necessarily think that it had anything to do with our food. I think just in the fast casual space, people were expecting a super burrito for $6. And if they're going to spend $11 here, they wanted a substantial amount of food. So we've adjusted. Yeah, that that becomes problematic in the space, right? Because what you're trying to do is essentially you're you're a high end mm-hmm. competition for something that doesn't care about ingredients and is just pumping out uh, items that have a lot of filler in them. Yeah. And you're not necessarily able to get away with that, right? Because mm-hmm. you're making pasta from scratch, so you can't just like throw a bunch of rice in there that you bought on the bottom of the bowl or like a bunch of mixed greens, exactly. right? Um, so when you're doing sort of like that analysis and you're you're looking at how people are responding, what is that process like? Are you are you gathering customer feedback? Are you looking at Yelp? Are you looking at, <laughs> at Square? I mean, like, I'm a, a small business owner, and it's like, it's weird to, you have to pay attention to all those things, yeah. but at a certain point, are you feeling, like, overwhelmed by all those touch points and all the feedback and all the, the, yeah. the roles that can be kind of, like, continuous like a 24-hour news cycle of it's not easy reading yeah. the reviews yeah uh, some are good some are bad <laughs> totally <laughs> but um i was actually talking to missy robbins about this when we first opened and she said if you read something once or twice like don't let it get to you if it comes up like more than three or four times then pay attention and that was true to the portion sizes we needed to increase them we did and think people are happy now let's talk about trends Mm -hmm. in fast casual and about specifically how your restaurant has done some taken some visual cues to cater to the instagram crowd um specifically there's uh you know neon signage you've got uh, a lot of millennial pink going on which uh seems to be um Things that are not necessarily have anything to do with the specific food or flavor, but is really about getting people in the door to photograph themselves with your food, right? Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that as a chef, as the creator of the food Mm -hmm. that um, you have to kind of play that, that game now? I think that it's a little bit of a misconception that we are an Instagram restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely Instagrammable. Uh, And that's definitely something that we considered, but the design, I I feel like that takes away from the design a little bit and the quality. And it was very, very thoughtful of having a certain amount of wood and warmth to the bright colors 
that we have. And we chose pink for the first location because we thought it would be an amazing flagship color to the brand. Um, but it, it really also represents to me like contemporary Milan cafes, not just a, another pink restaurant. Mm-hmm. So basically other restaurants did it because it doesn't really fit, but you think that for the Sosta, it totally fits. hundred percent. fits the vibe. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, sort of as a follow-up, I'm just wondering like, what do you think about people not even directly related to the Sosta, mm-hmm. but that uh, are always taking a photo of everything and they're like seeking out that perfect Instagram shot of their food. Mm-hmm. They're less worried about what it tastes like. Is that something that as someone who's extremely passionate about food and has traveled to Italy many times, Uh is that something that you are, is there like tension? Do you fight against that? Or is that something that you participate in? Like, how do you feel about it? I hope to help prove them wrong, that they're not just coming to a pretty place, but the food is actually delicious. And one of the main focuses on designing the space with Sam and with Alexander Waterworth, who we partnered with to design the space, was we wanted to make it light because our food is light. Our food is fresh, and we really wanted the food and the ambiance to match. If you would have thought five years ago Mm -hmm. that you would be running a restaurant in Manhattan, would that have made sense, or would you have thought that that was totally crazy? I feel like I've always been a little delusional on like how big my dreams are. So I'm pretty sure I would have said I'd be doing this. So let's take that sort of delusion. Not to take away. It's still surreal every day, but I've also always expected myself to do. Let's uh, fast forward that sort of enthusiasm and uh, and hopes and dreams for mm-hmm. grandeur. Uh, where do you think that the Sosta can go in the next couple years? And what are you... Um, what do you hope to achieve with the Sosta? I hope that the Sosta expands throughout Manhattan and hopefully some other cities nearby. And how how big do you think it can get with the money that you see being pumped into Fast Casual? You mm-hmm. see like Danny Meyer has a, a startup fund, right? You know, he's yeah. putting money into Joe's and into uh, other Fast Casual concepts and you see things exploding across the city uh, and going national right Mm -hmm. and concepts that e squared has championed have now now they're international right so do you think that the sosta can work uh on route 66 in kentucky on the way to los angeles i do because i think that pasta is universal and it's not scary and i think that with our brand and how strong it is and the potential for it i think that we could open up in any market. So there's a chance that in a couple years from now, <laughs> you'll be taking a road trip around the United States and you'll opt out of the Whopper and you'll be getting <laughs> a bowl of uh, vodka uh, bucatini or, or uh, paparadelle with a uh, ragu uh, from the Sosta. Ali, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to hear about your concept and the opening of your restaurant. You're Three months in. Three months. So that's incredibly exciting. Uh, Tell everyone where they can find you and your restaurant. The Sosta is at 186 Mott Street, and it is in Nolita. Great. So everyone go check it out. 
and uh, best of luck to you as you get through your you. first year of opening. And hopefully we'll have you back on the show when you open up uh, your second storefront. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.